Google News as we comes up as my home page so I can check headlines uh, in the morning when I get up. And uh, right at the top of the page, there was the White House with rainbow colors all the way across it. And I almost threw up right there. My stomach turned almost completely over. The rainbow of obviously representing gay pride and the gay way and the blasphemy and the abomination toward God. I'm sure you've heard by now that the Supreme Court issued an edict that gay marriage, that's an oxymoron, there is no such thing as far as I'm concerned, or God is concerned, uh, is now available in all 50 states. We are in the days of Sodom and Gomorrah now, officially. And how long will it be before God's judgment drops? It can't be very long. Just a sad thing. And you know, you can't point anything at the White House other than maybe a personal camera without having, uh, being scrutinized and without having approval to do so. So on some level, <clears throat> our government approved bathing the White House in a, as a rainbow all the way across it. So that is was an official thing that was done. You couldn't do that without permission. And Fox News has just made a statement that we will be facing guerrilla warfare in the very near future. Now that's a strange thing for Fox, a very, very liberal program to admit to, but perhaps the powers that be are letting us know a little bit ahead of time that their plan is to institute things soon. What soon means, I don't know for sure, but guerrilla warfare actually implies civil war is what it implies, but there are people who will not go along with what the powers that be want done, and therefore will fight and war against the government, and that's essentially civil war, our peoples fighting each other. There is a scripture in Isaiah we've read several times that talk about you'll hear a rumor in one year, is it 29, somewhere right in there, uh, and then the, the next year, war in the land, ruler against ruler. So even among the powers that be, there will be warfare when this thing breaks out, ruler against ruler, not just people against the government. And even now, with the ruling by the Supreme Court on gays, uh, some in the government agree with it, and one Supreme Court justice who was against it uh, wrote a dissenting opinion so even within the Supreme Court, there are very strong feelings for and against. So that's ruler against ruler. Of course, the whole thing is unconstitutional in the first place, but uh, we don't live by the Constitution in this country any longer. Hello. Uh, we should know that by now. Anyway, I, I make those in the form of uh, announcements. We might be keeping up on what is going on and how close God's judgment may be coming upon us. As far as the sermon is concerned, then, uh, I'm approaching a subject which 
has caused a great deal of confusion, both out in the world as a whole, and within the church as well. Uh, and that issue is keeping track of time, or in a word, the calendar. I got on uh, the internet this morning reading various articles about how far different calendars go back and what they're based upon and so on. And I'll tell you what, that is a morass of confusion. You enter a swamp when you start discussing calendar, and I mean even up to thousands of years ago, hundreds of years ago, as people have tried to deal with keeping track of time. We currently have a 365 and roughly one quarter day year, but it's not that alone, it is 365, 365 days, six hours, and so many minutes, and so many seconds. Now make that divisible by 12, <laughs> to get 12 months. Some calendars used to have 10 months. They were longer, but they were 10-month calendars. Uh, there have been all kinds of ways devised to try to keep track of time on a logical basis and not have the calendar drift uh, out of season. And it's, it's been a major problem. Uh, the Romans devised calendars, the Babylonians devised calendars, and then the Catholic Church became alarmed that they saw Easter drifting further away from the spring equinox. So they amended the Julian calendar uh, and produced what we call the Gregorian calendar today. Uh, that was in 1582 that that was established by Pope Gregory XIII. So the calendar in everyday use now across the world, essentially, is the Gregorian calendar. It took several centuries for everyone to adopt that, and Greece didn't even adopt it until 1927. Uh, the U.S. sometime in the 1700s, along with Britain, I think, as I recall. But because the Protestants were fearful that the Catholics were trying to draw all the Protestants back to Catholicism by use of the Gregorian calendar. So there were all kinds of didos that went on, what you actually have in the heavens is you have a new moon conjunction every 29 or 30 days, and it varies through the year. Some months, 29 days, some months, 30 days. But uh, the, the Caesars amended the calendar uh, because, I think it was, was it uh, Augustus first that uh, took a day away from February and added it to August? so that his month would be longer than anyone else's. And then Julius uh, saw that later and took another day off February and added it to July, so that his would be just as long as Augustus's. So you have the pride and the vanity and the ego of rulers, and that threw the calendar into even further turmoil. I can't remember who was first, Julius or Augustus, it doesn't really matter. But those are the, the facts of the matter of what happened. So. February shortened, and those are lengthened, and then they have other months that also have been assigned 31 days, some 30, and one 28. 
So the Gregorian calendar is a confusion, uh, and they see no real answer to the problem. So if you want to know where the calendar you use every day came from, it was instituted by the Catholics to keep Easter when they wanted it. <laughs> that, that was the main purpose involved in the situation. And the reason that it was drifting is that the year was slightly too long. And they recognized that. So with the longer year, 365 and a quarter plus hours, plus uh, minutes and seconds, it caused drift in the calendar they were using. The Gregorian calendar is also totally a solar calendar. It is not lunisolar, but solar. We'll see how that fits with the Bible in a little bit. So, going back hundreds, thousands of years, man has struggled with keeping a calendar that kept correct marking of time without drifting out of season. We thought in the church years ago that there was a perfect 19-year cycle because the Jews had decided, based on the 365 and a quarter and their prejudices, that out of 19 years they would declare seven years as leap years to keep things in balance and from drifting. But lo and behold, there is no such thing as a, as a heavenly 19-year cycle. There is an approximate every 19 years, but it too is not exact and is longer than 19 years by, I forget how much, and it doesn't really matter the technicalities of it. But it isn't exact, and it also continues to allow a drift out of season. And the Jews are concerned about that because in so many centuries from now, uh, they will have drifted far enough away, away from the vernal equinox that they don't know how to adjust it. So it's on their calendar and on their minds and in their conferences of what do we do about this. So you can see it's, it's been kind of a naughty thing. Then it began to be questioned within the church if the Hebrew calculated calendar, which is the one the Jews are using today, was indeed correct, and were we keeping the holy days at the right times or not. And the authority of who could establish a calendar was immediately questioned in Romans 3, say, and people stated that the Jews had control of that based on Romans 3, which we'll get to eventually. So who does have the authority? And why is it such an issue in the church? Now, I supported the Hebrew calendar for a long time, figuring, well, my God must have given it to the Jews. But as you look into the history of it, you find that the Jews changed it quite often. I was reading about the Jewish calendar this morning, and Wikipedia says it was... A product of evolution. Let me, uh, let me read some parts of this. The Hebrew or Jewish calendar is a lunisolar calendar used today predominantly for Jewish religious observances. They're holy days or holidays. 
The present Hebrew calendar is the product of evolution, including a Babylonian influence. Do we look to the Babylonians for authority or influence in the calendar? The Jews did. And some of their calendar has elements of what the Babylonians were doing in it. Until the Taneatic period, approximately 10 to 220 of the current era after Christ, the calendar employed a new crescent moon with an additional month normally added every two or three years to correct for the difference between 12 lunar months and the solar year. So the lunar months don't come out to 365 and a quarter. So there was that difference they had to deal with. He goes on to say, when to add it was based on observation of natural agriculture-related events. In short, the barley harvest at Jerusalem. Now, there's nothing in the Bible that tells us that we are to base anything on the cal- of the calendar on a barley harvest. Absolutely nothing that says we are to base it on that or that it's part of the equation. You can't find it. It isn't in there. Somebody says, well, where is the conjunction mentioned in the Bible? It's not. And to that I might add another question. Where is the first crescent mentioned in the Bible? It isn't in there. Neither one of those are in there. You cannot show me by any example in the Bible anything about the first crescent. Nothing is there. I can show you examples of the conjunction. That is clearly in there, and we'll see that. So, they used the barley harvest at Jerusalem. Now, part of the problem there is they don't even know what continent Jerusalem was on. Nor do they know the location of it. That's another subject, but it's true. So, through the Amoraic period, 20 to 500 of the current era, and into the Geonic period, this system was gradually displaced by the mathematical rules used today. Hillel, very close in name to Satan, in the 300s, came up with the basic outline of the current Hebrew calendar. So, what the Jews are using today was not what Christ was using when he walked the earth. It was not established until over 300 years later. Then it was changed or evolved, as this article says, over a period of hundreds of years until it reached its current form in the 12th century under Maimonides. The Hebrew lunar year is about 11 days shorter than the solar cycle, so it's not, six, not, it's not five and a quarter days different, it's 11 days shorter than the actual traveling of the earth around the sun. So it's 11 days shorter than the solar cycle and uses the 19-year metonic cycle to bring it into line with the solar cycle with the addition of an intercalary month every two or three years. So, what they realize is that 
the year and the and twelve months according to the moon don't add up to a correct marking of time. So they add a thirteenth month uh, every two or three years for a total of seven times per nineteen years. And the nineteen year cycle I've already said isn't exact. But that's what they've chosen to do, is add a month when they feel like it, seven out of 19 years. Even with his intercalation, or adding of a month, the average Hebrew calendar is longer by about six minutes and 40 seconds than the current average solar year. So that every 217 years, the Hebrew calendar will fall a day behind the current average solar year, and about every 231 years, it will fall a day behind the Gregorian calendar. So that's a drift that they're worrying about. Even with their present system, every 200-some years, it drifts away a day. And they don't know what to do about it. So it's a very complicated thing. I hope I'm not already losing you. Just talking about how complicated... The world and the Jewish people uh, and the situation they have really is. It's a very difficult thing. 365 and a quarter plus minutes and seconds is simply not divisible by anything and creates all kinds of problems. Now, some in the Church of God have realized that the Hebrew calendar is not correct in many, many respects. And not only is it not mathematically correct and does not keep track of time properly and drifts out of season, to that, to add insult to injury, they have decided that they will make extra rules that are certainly not in Scripture anywhere, and if they don't like a day that their calculations would put a holy day, they will simply postpone it a day or two to get a day that they like. The particular issue with them is they don't like back-to-back Sabbaths. And the main one they don't like is atonement, let's say on a Friday, followed by a weekly Sabbath. Or a weekly Sabbath followed by atonement on Sunday, whichever comes. That they truly despise. They don't really fast anyway, so, you know, but that's another matter. So they have added postponements. If they don't like the way the heavens, or what the heavens say, they change it to suit their own purposes. So they mainly focus on the fall holy days and move them around by a day or two, on a regular basis. But then in the springtime, they've made so many adjustments in the fall that they can't make those postponements in the springtime without doing violence to their calendar. You can only make so much adjustments before it throws the whole thing off. So they stick with postponing mostly in the fall and when they can get away with it in the spring. So they don't have holy days back to back, or Sabbath and a holy day. There's nothing about that in the Bible. Nothing. 
Nothing. So it's something of their own devising. Now you do realize, at the end of Matthew 22, Christ essentially disfellowshipped the Jews. What it says. You'll have, I'll have nothing to do with you until you accept those whom I have sent, which was the apostles. And he berated them on a regular basis for not following God's way, for not doing what God says, for changing things around according to their own traditions, and called them a real heap of ugly names, if you can recall some of those that are in the Scriptures that he called them. Really set them off, upset them terribly. But he called them snakes and sons of their father the devil. Do you look to that for authority? Does does Romans 3 go beyond that and give them authority on the calendar anyway? Let's go to Romans 3 for a moment. I didn't intend to put it in here right now, but uh, since we're discussing it, let's go back there. In the light of what they are doing and the church using this as authority, And then we'll go from here to a real authority that tells you who can uh, follow the calendar, I guess is a better way to put it, the calendar that God made. And we'll see what that is. So, Paul is explaining in Romans 2 to the Romans who were not Israelites that the Jews were given the truth through Abraham, through Moses later. Abraham wasn't a Jew, but uh, they came through Judah later on. But he says at the end of chapter 2, verse 28, He is not a Jew, which is one outwardly, neither is that circumcision which is outward in the flesh. It means nothing. But he is a Jew, which is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart in the spirit, not in the flesh whose praise is not of men, but of God. So he's essentially saying the physical circumcision the Jews were using means nothing spiritually today. It is a physical exercise uh, that is not necessary, needed, or even advocated in Scripture. But circumcision of the heart certainly is. So he's explaining that true Christianity is a spiritual designation, not one of the flesh or by blood. What advantage then, the question is asked, does the Jew have? If his physical circumcision means nothing, what advantage does he have? Or what profit is there of circumcision? He's already said that doesn't mean anything. Much every way. They do have an advantage, Paul is saying here, chiefly because that under them were committed the oracles of God. Now, the oracles of God here is Logion and of Logos, and it means really the sayings of God, God's words. Well, where are God's words? Did the Jews just simply remember them all? All the things God had ever said to anybody? Whether it be Noah or Abraham or 
Moses or any of the figures in the Old Testament? Did they remember and know everything God had ever said to all the prophets? No. Well, then, what did they have? They had the Old Testament. They had the words that God had inspired Moses and Isaiah and Ezra and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and various other ones to write. Now, when Christ arrived on this earth as a babe, the Jews had those sayings of God written down. Now, is that an advantage? Yes, it is. To have God's Word is a tremendous advantage. Now, did they make proper use of the advantage that they held? That is the... Let's read on. They had the sayings of God. Belief make the faith of God without effect. Maybe they had the words of God. But if you don't believe them, what good does that do? God forbid. Yes, let God be true, but every man a liar, as it is written, that you might be justified in your sayings and might overcome when you were judged. So Christ told them clearly when they were here that they had the word of God, but they didn't follow it. And Paul is saying here that they had an advantage. They had the word, but they didn't believe it, didn't follow it, and therefore they lost whatever advantage they had to who had the words of God. They did, and didn't follow them. Christ made that very plain. But if our unrighteousness commend the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unrighteous who takes vengeance? I speak as a man. God forbid, for then how shall God judge the world? God judges righteous judgment, and He judges according to His word, and Christ summarily judged the current Pharisees of his day at the end of Matthew 22 when he took authority and membership of Israel, spiritually speaking, away from them. They may still have had been, they didn't get uncircumcised. And they didn't turn to the law either. They didn't listen to him. So it was a spiritual thing that he did, not physical. So he goes on then to say, For the truth of God, verse 4, more abounded through my lie unto his glory, why yet am I also judged as a sinner, as a liar? And not rather, as we be slanderous reported, and as some affirm that we say, let us do evil that good may come, whose damnation is just. They didn't teach that, but they were accused of it. In fact, Paul himself said very clearly, Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. No, we shouldn't sin just so God's grace is made bigger. <laughs> it's not logical. Verse 9, What then? Are we better than they? No, in no wise, for we have before proved both Jews and Gentiles that they are all under sin. There is none righteous, no, not one. So it didn't matter whether they were Gentiles or Jews, they were all under sin, and the wages of sin is death. Okay? As it is written, well, it says it right here, there is none righteous, no, not one. 
There is none that understands. There is none that seeks after God. So he's saying right here, speaking of the Jews, that there is none that understands. Only those whom Christ had called or who had been called under their teaching understood. They are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that does good. No, not one. And then he describes the Jews pretty much as Christ did. Their throat is an open sepulcher. They open their mouth, you can smell rotting flesh. With their tongues they have used deceit. The poison of snakes is under their lips whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. Not righteousness and salvation. Their ways lead to destruction and misery. And the way of peace have they not known. And he goes on and on. So, yes, the Jews had an advantage. They had the Old Testament. But they didn't believe it and they didn't follow it, and they were not righteous, and they were like dead men walking, Paul says. There's nothing there about the calendar. It's only about the Old Testament and the fact that they didn't follow it and were not righteous. People have said the oracles of God means the calendar. No, it doesn't. It's the sayings of God. Now, I'll show you a saying of God in a little bit, that tells us where the calendar is and essentially how to keep it. Now, there are many people in the church of God, many different splinters today because God did scatter it, and the calendar has been one of the most divisive issues really of all. And I submit to you the most so-called calendar people who claim they have the perfect calendar, or the right calendar, or God's calendar, do not understand truly how the calendar works, nor do they follow Scripture, which they quote. Some who use the calendar as the primary centerpiece of their group do not understand how it works. We have people who follow the actual conjunction in the heavens. We have those who follow the first crescent after the conjunction. And we even have one calendar group that I know of that instead of postponing, actually prepone, is my word I dreamed up. They take when the moon begins to go dark before the actual conjunction and say you start counting from before the conjunction of the moon, sun, and earth even occurs. So you have those over there that are doing it ahead of time. You have those who are doing it at the conjunction, and those who do it at the first crescent after the conjunction. So who's right? How can you prove when the new moon actually is? That's a major question. When is the new moon? Is there an answer to that? Again, you can't find first crescent in the Bible. You can't find the word conjunction in the Bible. And you certainly can't find 
before the conjunction in the Bible. Those terms are not there. So we have to go by Bible example. And that is true fairly often in the Bible. It was how I learned that Herbert Armstrong was wrong about pornea. He thought it was just premarital fornication, that it didn't include adultery or bestiality or homosexuality or various other things. And you could get the Greek definitions from all the scholars about pornea or about adultery or other sex sins and not come up with a definition that would truly show when God allows divorce based on the word pornea. And that's what Christ used in Matthew 19. But it was inconclusive. Herbert Armstrong decided that it only meant premarital sex. But the ones who define the word don't put it on that narrow a basis. His thinking was very Victorian, and that was the only grounds for uh, uh, breaking even an engagement or a marriage. Adultery was not. But lo and behold, it was by Bible example that I discovered that pornea includes all kinds of sex sins, including adultery. And that is where it is describing Jezebel, there in Romans 3, I think it is, and says, did I say Romans? I meant Revelation, where it says that she committed pornea. She was a married woman and committed pornea. So pornea, by Bible example, included adultery and other sex sins uh, as defined by Scripture. So sometimes we cannot find a Scripture that uses, let's say, an English word to describe something in Scripture. And as in the case of the new moon itself, we will find how it is to be done by example rather than by some English, Greek, or Hebrew word. Sometimes God just does not spell it out that way, but he does by example. I gave you one other example of a different situation that shows that as well. So when we see this, you'll see it's not the only time or the only place God says something and then defines it by example given. Now, I hope I can clear up some confusion that is in various churches of God and even questions that have been asked here from time to time about how it all comes together and what works and what does not work and what is legal and what is illegal. And I think I can probably explain it more clearly and more simply today than I might have a few years ago. We have some tapes where I mentioned it here and there and also emails that I wrote to individuals here and there that we send out at times, but they do not put the whole subject together completely. Uh, they do give the basis of what the Scripture says. But to truly understand, you have to have a grasp of both the history of time counting and of prophecy. 
once you understand the historical record from the very beginning, and you understand how the prophecies work, you have a basis for understanding how to deal with what we have today that is so confusing and has confused whole empires and nations and peoples as well as church people. Here's an article I took off the internet. I looked up 360 degree circle. And you can approach this with research on the internet in many different ways to come up with that. But where did we get a 360 degree circle? Some have said, since we go by tens in this country, basically, that we should use a hundred degree circle and it would be easily divisible by everything we do today and that a circle should only have a hundred divisions, not 360. So a question was asked, and here is an answer by James Shook from Redford Township, Mississippi. The question was asked, where did the 360 degree circle come from? Here's his answer. The same people who invented the wheel about 6,000 years ago. The Mesopotamians who love the number 60. It's a useful and easily divisible number which made it ideal for both early mathematics and commercial trade. The Mesopotamians <laughs> passed their base 60 numerical system to the ancient Egyptians who used it to divide a circle into 360 degrees. Uh, he says, Mary Bloxma writes in her book, Reading the Numbers. Going on, he says, the 360-degree circle worked out great. The Egyptians loved perfect triangles, and exactly six of them fit into a circle. Therefore, six triangular slices of 60 degrees each... Uh, Five point twenty-five days. Since then, the three hundred sixty-degree circle has more than stood the test of time. It has made its mark on time itself. When time was first recorded on the face of a circle, it was an easy leap to divide hours into sixty minutes and minutes into sixty seconds. So he says it goes all the way back to man's experience six thousand years ago. Now here is. Another article from WonderQuest, it says the 360-degree circle is 4,400 years old. Now, bear with me. The 360-degree circle was known a long, long time ago, and it has an impact today on calendar. The question is asked here, why does a circle have 360 degrees, why not 100 degrees? Also, why is a degree six minutes, 60 minutes, and a minute, 60 seconds? She says, we delve back to arrive at a probable answer. It says, a, a line of ancient peoples, Sumerians, Akkadians, and Babylonians, who lived in Mesopotamia, now southern Iraq, invented writing, observed the skies, note that, observed the skies, and invented a 360-degree circle to describe their findings. When they examined the skies, they found something there 
that caused them to make a 360-degree circle. It came out of the heavens. That is a key point to keep in mind. Okay? Because it has heavy impact. About 3000 B.C., the Sumerians invented writing. (coughs) Excuse me. They also had a calendar dating from 2400 B.C. that divided the year into 12 months of 30 days each, that is, 360 days. So the Sumerians observed the heavens, came up with a 360-degree circle. Then they came up with a year divided equally at 12 months, 30 days, 360 uh, days in a year. That was the reality that they had seen, that they observed. The Sumerians watched the sun, moon, and the five visible planets. They did not try to understand the motions physically. They did, however, notice the circular track of the sun's annual path across the sky and knew that it took about 360 days to complete one year's circuit. It says about here. It was 360. Consequently, they divided the circular path into 360 degrees to track each day's passage of the sun's whole journey. This probably happened about 2400 B.C. That's how we got a 300-degree circle and a 360-degree or day year according to her. I think it happened before that, but what I did turn up in a quick look at some uh, different sites was that they recognized that it went back at least that far. So you can find more to go with that very easily by getting on the Internet. Now, the church recognized decades ago I remember hearing when I was a kid about the prophetic year. You ever heard that expression, the prophetic year? The church used it quite a bit because they recognized there was a Gregorian calendar that we use every day in our business. But the Bible mentioned a different length of year. So it was commonly called the prophetic year. In other words, the calendar that is recognized in the Bible, by the Bible, through Scripture. Okay? Because when you get into some of the prophecies, you will find that they had to come at a specific time. Now, let me give you a good example of that. Uh, Revelation 11.3. I think we'll turn to this. I want you to, to see it and make notation of it because this is very important. Revelation 11, <clears throat> verse 3. Here the subject is the two witnesses and goes on down to talk about the time that they will prophesy. And it says in verse 3, And I will give power to my two witnesses that they shall prophesy a thousand two hundred and threescore days clothed in sackcloth. 
So the amount of time that the two witnesses will preach to the world is 1,260 days. That starts on the day the abomination of desolation is set up in the temple. You can go to Daniel 9 and see that because it says that that is set up at the time uh, 70 weeks after the uh, giving of the order to build Jerusalem. Also, Matthew 24, verses 15, 16, 17, right in there, it talks about when you see that abomination set up, that that is time for the church to flee to a place of safety where they will be nourished. You see that in chapter 12 of Revelation, uh, verse 14, And to the woman were given two wings of a great eagle, that she might fly into the wilderness, into her place, that's Zion, where she is nourished for a time and times and half a time from the face of the serpent. Now, the, the Greek will show you that time and times, time represents one year, times two years, so that's three, and a half a time is a half a year. So the period of the two witnesses beginning their preaching of 1260 days is also the same time that the church is in her place for three and one half years. Now, Revelation 11, verse 2, just before verse 3 we read, it says, But the court which is without the temple leave out and measure it not, for it is given unto the Gentiles, and the holy city shall lay tread under foot. Forty-two months. So the abomination is set up in Jerusalem, and the times of the Gentiles start then and go for forty-two months. Same day, the two witnesses start to preach for 1260 days, and the church goes to safety for three and a half years. Now, all those three have to fit together to all be talking about the same period of time. The only way you can have 42 months, three and a half years, and 1260 days is if you have a 360 day year. That's the only way it can happen, that it can be properly divisible into 360. 365 and a quarter plus hours and or minutes and seconds will not work. Now what that tells me is that prophetically speaking, the heavens will change. They will go back to a 360 day year. That way we can have that period of time that is all three of the things that the Bible mentions. Why did God put it that way? Why didn't He just say three and a half years three times? Or 1260? Or why didn't He say 42 months three times? Why did He make it three different ways of counting the same amount of time? I think He did it on purpose to show this. So He's going to change our present day configuration of sun, moon, and earth to make a 360-day year. It has to happen at least by the day that the abomination of desolation is set up 
in the holy place there in Daniel 9 and Daniel 12 and Matthew 24. has to happen by then in order for those three delineations to actually occur as Scripture says. Will it be announced by God's church before it happens? I think there's a good possibility of that so that God can show where He is working. Maybe the witnesses themselves will make that announcement. And God will tell them when and how He's going to do it or show them in some way when He's going to do it and cause them to announce it. And then when it happens, the world will have no excuse. If it just happened... Um, they'd say, well, you know, Nibiru did it or something. Or a comet passed by and it shifted it to 360. But if it's announced ahead of time and then happens, they're without excuse. That's what leads me to believe that God will probably most likely do that. So looking at prophecy, we can see that the prophetic year has meaning and has to occur in order for the prophecies to be fulfilled. Now, does that mean that there was a time in history when we had the same thing? We've already seen from worldly sources that the Sumerians, the Egyptians, various ones recognized a 360-day year and a 360-degree circle. Now, let's go back to, well, let me, let me add a, a thought here. <clears throat> in, in defense of the possibility that God will cause it to be announced ahead of time, Luke 4.25, I won't turn there, and James 5.17, uh, recount the story of Elijah praying that it not rain, and it didn't rain for three and one-half years, on the earth. So God caused Elijah and gave him the power through prayer and his answer to that prayer that there be a three and a half year period of time when it didn't rain. Now, Elijah and Moses are used as types of the two witnesses at the end, both in Malachi 4 and in Matthew at the Transfiguration and uh, a couple of other places that refer to John the Baptist as Elijah and how Elijah had come, but there was another one yet to come. So there is precedent in there for God using a three-and-a-half-year period whereby he did something miraculous as a result of what Elijah uh, did. And the end-time type, again, is one of those two prophets, is a type of Elijah who would restore all things as well. So, I think we have some precedent in the Bible for uh, that premise uh, to be true about the announcing ahead of time, the three, 360. <clears throat> now, let's go to Re oh, Genesis 1. Now, I think all, if not all, certainly a very high 90s percentage of people in the church who claim the Hebrew calculated calendar is incorrect and not a proper guide, come back to Genesis 1.14 and use it as authority uh, to 
provide a calendar of their approval, let's say. Now, this is in, of course, a beginning when God recreated the heavens and the earth. Uh, they were without form and void. There was already an earth here. It says that the earth was without form and void. Darkness was upon the face of the deep, so the seas were there. Uh, land had not, was not visible. But the earth was here when God began this creation in Genesis 1. So the earth could have been here for millions, billions, trillions of years. I don't know. I have no idea when he made it. He doesn't say. But it was here when he commenced in Genesis 1. And from Genesis 1 forward is the only record we have and the only record we need. We are only interested in the period of time from man's placement on the earth in terms of salvation and the future of God's kingdom. Anything that was before that really does not matter to us. Now, we do have a record of Satan's rebellion against God and chaos and war in the universe. He does briefly mention that. And perhaps that's when the earth became without form and void and became dark and no land, just water and darkness. So it may very well be that there were dinosaurs and all kinds of creations prior to Genesis 1.1. But here God said, let's have a little light, (laughs) first of all. And later on, uh, after some light was shed on the subject... He made some heavenly bodies to make and regulate light. Go down to verse 13. And the evening and the morning were the third day. So he had made day and night back in uh, the first day. Then he had made the dry land and earth and let it bring forth grass and herbs and various things. And it was so. So, the third day, God said, third or fourth, whatever, uh, I guess the evening and morning were the fourth day. So, this is the fourth day, verse 14. Uh, And God said, let there be lights in the firmament of the heaven to divide the day from the night. So, there was to be bodies in the heavens that would tell you and make the difference between day and night. Do we not have that today? Sun goes down, we have night. Sun comes up, we have day. So the sun is designated to determine day and night. And let them be for signs. So he says, I'm putting these heavenly bodies there, and they are to be signs for you. What does a sign do? It imparts knowledge. It tells you something. It gives you understanding. Highway signs tell you about exits. They tell you about uh, different uh, historic sites. They tell you, they regulate speed. They tell you when to stop. Signs give you information that is good, that helps you drive safely unless you're texting. The other day, I, (laughs) oh my... Here's this gal texting just like this, sitting in a traffic light. Light turned. She put, hit the gas and kept texting. I honked at her pretty loud. She never looked up. 
I wanted to yell at her and tell her, are you trying to kill yourself or somebody? But she wouldn't look up. She was busy. That didn't have anything to do with today's sermon. But signs are there to impart information that you can use. So he says, when I put lights in the firmament, they're there for signs. They're there to tell you something, okay? And for seasons. The Hebrew word there is moed, which actually means holy days, so that you can determine the holy days. Now, you have to also, as we will see, understand months and seasons in order to calculate holy days, because they are specific, in some cases, to seasons, and they are specific to certain days of certain months. So, if he uses the word moed, moed there, the heavenly signs are there to be, for you to be able to tell when to keep God's holy days or moeds. And you must be able to keep track of days, months, seasons, and years in order to do that. So, when people go to Genesis 1.14, they're going to the right place. It's the other stuff they add to it, and they don't understand how the heavens work, that creates problems with the calendars, even in the church. Okay, for seasons, or for calculating holy days, and for days and years. He mentions two, or lights, plural, that are there to do that. Let them be for lights in the firmament of the heaven, to give light upon the earth, and it was so. And God had made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day, that would obviously be the sun, and the lesser light to rule the night. He made the stars also. And there is a message even in the stars. The constellations revolve throughout the period of the year, and they show the sequence of God's holy days. Uh, you can read... Uh, Bullinger's God's Witness in the Stars is an excellent book that shows how the heavenly constellations work and enact the plan of God of salvation every year. Fascinating book. Easy, read, easy to read also. And God set them in the firmament of the heaven to give light upon the earth and to rule over the day and over the night and to divide the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. Now, there's a clue for you. When he set those so that you could determine days, months, seasons, years, he did it in a good fashion, a fashion that would be easy to follow, that would be clear, that would have the simplicity of Christ and the Father. It would not be a complicated, difficult thing to follow. To determine time, the passage of time, and how to count holy days then. It was good. Now look at what we discussed earlier with the Gregorian calendar, the Hebrew calculated calendar, Babylonian, Roman, whichever one. There are calendars all over the world. Chinese had them, Mayans had them. 
everybody had their own calendars, and they all dealt with the problem of 365 and a quarter minutes and seconds that it takes for the sun or the earth to go around the sun, completing a year. No end of complications. Could you say that what we are dealing with today is good? It's simple, it's easy, it works, there are no questions, easy to follow. I don't think so. And what we've already discussed shows how complicated and difficult it's been over the years and how many, many times they have revised the calendar because it would drift one way or another or they didn't know how to divide it up or they added months or they added a date of February every fourth year, and all kinds of things they've done to try to figure out how to keep a proper passage of time. It's not good. It's awful. It's difficult. It's divisive. It creates divisions in the world. It creates divisions in the church. It's not good. That tells me that what God originally created, and He called good had to be different from the confusion and frustration that we have today. It had to be different. Now, we've already seen from worldly sources, and there are many, many more that I didn't go to, that say that the 360-day year or calendar used to exist. Even the Sumerians and various ones, the Egyptians, recognized that. So if they did, did Israel? Was it known? <coughs> what kind of calendar was it? Now people who support the Hebrew calendar say that God whispered a calendar into Moses' ear. And therefore they knew how to keep track of time. And gave it to the Jews as part of the oracles of God. Now, is that what we just read? Genesis 1.14? Did it say that the signs in the heavens would be difficult, hard to read, and that God would have to whisper in Moses' ear or some Jewish rabbi way back and tell him how to keep it calculated? And then they got so frustrated with that that Hillel made up a new revised Hebrew calendar, 300 A.D. plus, and then Maimonides kept working on it because there were still problems, and by the 12th century then, he had the current Hebrew calendar finally figured out as it is today. But they still have difficulty because they don't know what to do with the 217 and 230, whatever it was, 32 years, whatever it was. Because it'll drift a day away from the spring solstice in those 217 years and away from Gregorian as well in 230-something. So if God whispered it to the Jews, why have the Jews been so confused? Why haven't the Jews been able to follow the same calendar all along if God gave it to them? Why the confusion among the Jews themselves? That doesn't make any sense to me. 
if God gave them a calendar, then they ought to still have it. And they shouldn't be scratching their heads about why it doesn't work. And they don't have a solution. So if God gave it to them, why didn't he give them the solutions also? He didn't give it to them. He gave it to you and me in Genesis 1.14. We already addressed Romans 3, where he said they had the Scriptures, they didn't believe them and didn't follow them, and their throats were open sepulchers. I quoted you Matthew 22, where Christ disfellowshipped them until they would listen to the apostles and those that would be converted through the apostles through the ages. And they haven't to this day. So God gave authority to the apostles and the church, or the church through the apostles, and took it away from the Jews and told the Jews, you better listen to my disciples. Do the Jews today listen to God's true followers? No, they don't. Does it appear then that the Jews are in authority with the calendar and have all the answers? No. The very fact of history shows that they didn't have the answers, couldn't find the answers, finally came up with some kind of a corrupt thing that doesn't follow Genesis 1.14, and if they don't like even the proximity to Genesis 1.14, they change the days to fit their prejudices. Now, where would God give authority like that? What if he did it with the Sabbath? You know, the Sabbath really, man, all the companies these days work on Saturday and and they take off on Sunday, some of them. And I'll lose my job if I start keeping Saturday instead of Sunday. So I think it would be convenient, really, if we just move the Sabbath to Sunday. That would work out better for us. So let's just move, let's just postpone it one day, from the seventh to the first day of the week. Calendar even says it's the seventh day, Sabbath. But if the Jews can postpone Feast of Tabernacles or Atonement by a day or two, why can't we postpone the Sabbath a day or two? Because we like it better and it fits our schedule better. Isn't it really the same thing? Huh? You can't postpone what God has set in the heavens. You can't do it. God set it. You must learn to read it. You must understand it. And then follow it. Because that's what it says here. Now, he gave this to Adam and Eve. He gave it to you and me. It is a constant, continual record written in Scripture, which is profitable in all things for us. So what God wrote here was to tell us how to be able to count the holy days and time. Therefore, he gives you, he gives me, authority to read the clock in the heavens. That's what it is, is a clock. 
that tells days, months, seasons, and years. We can't alter it. We can't change it. We can't postpone anything. But it is for us to understand and read. And then follow what it says to do. Now, I'm getting out of time to continue this, but that's a good place to truncate this sermon, is to show that there is authority in the Bible to follow what is in the heavens. And in fact, that is exactly what we are told to do. We've seen nothing here about barley harvest, have we? Look that one up. See if you can find where it says that you're to use the barley harvest to determine Passover. It's not in the Bible. It's not there. There is one reference to the barley harvest in terms of Passover, but that's not what it says. We'll get to that. It's all up there. The calendar is not in barley. The calendar is not anything on earth. The calendar, as stated right here, is totally in the heavens. All you need is what's up there to determine holy days. And that requires days, months, seasons, and years. It's all right there. How many people understand how it works? How do they know how to follow it? Now, we have seen that historically, there is record of a 360-day year. We have seen that prophetically, it has to occur again. Next week, God willing, we'll begin to go... Or do I speak next week? Yeah, I think I speak next week. We'll begin to go into how to understand it, how to read it, and know how to follow it. Because just knowing it's there doesn't do you any good unless you know how to read it and what to do with what the heavens are telling you. Not only that, we have some adjustments that came along if it were indeed a 360-day year, and divisible easily by 12 times 30, it was quite an easy thing to follow. But did it change? Obviously, if it was 360, it has. Now we got 365 and a quarter plus, and we don't know what to do with it. So we have to do the very best we can to get back to God's original intention. That is what we do in everything. If you notice, Herbert Armstrong went back to Genesis 1 over and over and over. It didn't matter what the subject was. He would go back to Genesis 1 to 3 to find out what God's original intent on virtually anything was. What did God originally intend? And he was correct about that. What did Christ for instance, tell the Pharisees, Moses allowed you to divorce and remarry and do all these kind of things that you do, but in the beginning it was not so. So what Moses may have allowed for the hardness of hearts in some cases was not God's original intent, and when Christ came to set things straight, he said, we have to go back to Genesis to find out what God's original intent was. So when it comes to the calendar, that's precisely where we have to go. Genesis 1. But we have to be sure that we understand 
what that means. Because, as I said, virtually every, that I know of, calendar group in the scattered church of God goes to Genesis 1.14 as their authority, and yet they come up with different answers as to how it works. We'll explore that.